0: Hello
1: and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John.
2: And I'm Andy. We've compiled a list of hundreds of movie scores that people consider significant, and we are assigning them to ourselves in random order. And for
1: this episode, the luck of the draw handed us Elmer Bernstein's score for the 1955 noir drama of drug addiction, The Man with the Golden Arm."
2: The Man with the Golden Arm was written by Walter Newman and Louis Meltzer, adapted from the 1949 novel by Nelson Algren, and it was produced and directed by Otto Preminger. John, sum it up.
1: Okay, 007 is back in action and this time he has to match wits with the famed assassin Scaramanga.
2: No, John, that's the wrong oh. that's the wrong entry in The Man with the Golden Series.
1: Oh wait, did I did I watch the wrong movie? Uh
2: yeah, but it's all right. We, we'll be able to make a conversation out of this, don't worry.
1: No, The Man with the Golden Arm mm-hmm. is a gritty black and white tale of the seedy world of drugs and gambling.
2: It stars sometime actor Frank Sinatra. <laughs> As Frankie Machine, a recovering addict who wants to stay clean and make a new life as a jazz musician, Eleanor Parker as his wheelchair-bound wife, Kim Novak as an old girlfriend who conveniently lives downstairs, also Darren McGavin and Arnold Stang (laughs) as the guy who looks like Arnold Stang. Yeah,
1: he really looks a lot (laughs) like Arnold Stang. (laughs) I was trying to remember where I'd seen him before, and the answer is a lot of places, but I think most keenly in my memory is that he's the guy who gets his gas station demolished by Jonathan Winters in to Mad, 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 Mad World.
2: Uh, sure. He's one of the classic, hey, it's that, guys.
1: So Frankie Machine, clean and out of jail, bright-eyed and eager to make something good with his life, runs afoul of his old gambling cronies and drug pushers who seem determined to throw his life off the rails. Finding little solace in his complicated relationship with his wife, It winds up falling to Kim Novak to help dry him out. Good enough?
2: Yeah, good enough. Sure, we have a whole episode to talk about it. (laughs) Wow, these images of Arnold Stang that I googled to uh, see if I recognize any other ones are distracting. Like, this is a hard face to have on your screen while you're trying to talk.
1: In case you're having trouble picturing him, he (laughs) wears these round Coke bottle glasses and is like the quintessential whiny little dweeb in old time movies. And I heard that he uh, like he had a car accident or something like that and had to have surgery near his face or something. He had to have some kind of facial medical work done. And uh, he said to the doctor as he was going under, for God's sake, don't make me pretty.
2: <laughs> yeah, he looks like uh, the tortoise and the hair cartoon tortoise. That's
1: right. That's what he looks like. I bet that was based on him.
2: I think that that predates him. But uh...
1: what's his name in this
2: movie? sparrow
1: sparrow for no yeah everybody else just calls him punk
2: yeah i think all of those names come from the book what is worth noting is that frank sinatra's character frankie was not named after frank sinatra he's named after the character in the book frankie
1: is his name frankie machine in the
2: book his name in the book is frankie quote machine unquote might He's explicitly Polish in the book, and Machine is uh, his tough guy nickname that's been given to him because it's related to his actual Polish last name, Mycinek. In the movie, however, he is not Polish. He's simply Frank Sinatra. Yeah,
1: so they just made machine into an actual name. Guy comes into his apartment and says, hello, Mrs. Machine, to his wife.
2: (laughs) That's right, yes. There are some (laughs) indications that maybe some of these people might have some ethnicity and some kind of cultural background. Why is the guy's name Swiefka? But for the most part, they have scrubbed any real specificity from the source material here. And maybe this is a way into talking about this movie. Okay, possibly.
1: Well, let's. Uh, <laughs> where does it? Where does it take you, Andy?
2: Well, what would you think of the movie, John?
1: I thought it was all right. You know, it felt very after school specialty to me. It seemed like a very special episode of Frank Sinatra.
2: Exactly, it is, (laughs) except this is like the first very special episode. Yeah. This sort of laid some of the groundwork for several decades worth of superficial looks at the serious issue of addiction.
1: Yeah. Well, it was one of those, though. (laughs) It really got there right away.
2: There were movies about alcoholism before this, but I don't think that there were movies about substances that the producers had to take the risk of acknowledging that the public has heard of
1: yeah so in point of fact it's heroin he's addicted to heroin in the movie but
2: how do we know that because we kind of see some of the paraphernalia and see how it's injected they never say the word heroin
1: they never say the word heroin they
2: don't say a slang word either they don't say any word they say stuff maybe at one point
1: but you for sure see him cinching off his arm to get injected with heroin which is what happens when you do heroin because of that, the movie was actually originally released without the seal that the Motion Picture Association of America was supposed to you know, officially issue for each movie because it shows this taboo subject really plainly. And then it was the next year that the production code was changed to finally allow there to be movies that dealt with seedier topics like drugs and prostitution and things like that. So then it was retroactively awarded the certificate. And
2: I read that the code was changed... Essentially because this movie was a success and they saw that the tide of public opinion had moved far enough that it was time to change the code, that it was a reaction to the reception of this movie. Yeah, I
1: think that's right. And I think it wound up, you know, in theaters at all because the individual theater chains made the decision to show the movie on their own because they felt that it was of value. It had, you know, a didactic merit to it because it in fact showed the catastrophic effects of drug addiction.
2: On drumming, certainly.
1: Certainly, it was very bad for drumming. His timing goes all to hell. Which is
2: kind of funny, right? That the thing they pick to show that heroin is going to ruin is his chances of making it as a jazz musician. It's a weird choice since that's kind of an association that some people might make that you know who actually does take a lot of heroin is jazz musicians. It seems not to be incompatible.
1: I mean, I think that perhaps was in fact an association that they did not want to acknowledge that the audience knew about and maybe they didn't know about in 1955. Yeah, maybe so. That's true. I mean, jazz music and these sorts of big bands that are depicted in the movie were big business, were really popular in fact the instrumental recording of the main title theme from this movie was a big hit on the top 40 on radio I think I heard Elmer Bernstein say that uh, it was vying back and forth with Elvis Presley records for a while as one of the most popular things on the radio so yeah I think it did seem very respectable, it was very culturally mainstream things like Shorty Rogers and his Giants, the band leader who worked on the soundtrack and who shows up in the
2: Yeah, well, that's the other striking thing about this movie. I mean, I guess I would say there's three things of striking significance about this movie. One is, indeed, that it was the first drug addiction issue movie and broke some barriers for what you could make a movie about. Two is that It is uh, arguably one of Frank Sinatra's most actorly performances. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty good, didn't you?
1: I did think it was pretty good, especially in the second half of the movie.
2: Yeah, he's got some real acting to do and he rises to it. He carries the movie and if you had some doubts about whether Frank Sinatra was a real honest to goodness actor or just a singer who had the clout to get into a lot of movies, I think he does some real honest to goodness acting in this movie that's perfectly respectable and enjoyable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other big accomplishment on that score of his would have to be um, From Here to Eternity, which I think he won an Oscar for. That's right, yeah. He was only nominated for this.
2: I read that Sinatra, when he saw this script going around, tried to move on it as fast as possible because he was still angry that he hadn't gotten the lead in On the Waterfront the previous year. He thought that would have been a great role for him to show his chops in and that they gave it right to Marlon Brando he was was angry about. He was like, I don't want Brando getting this one, this drug addict one. And
1: I think the part was actually offered to Brando, wasn't it? But Sinatra like corned his way in there. Yeah, he definitely did have this idea that he wanted to show his serious acting chops.
2: And his, eh, drumming chops.
1: Oh boy, I really would have imagined that he would have better (laughs) rhythm. Frank Sinatra, you know.
2: So what do you think? Were they trying to show that Frankie Machine is not that great a drummer, or is that just what Sinatra could do? Nice,
0: huh?
1: I was going to ask you the same question. You see shots of him practicing his drums, he's playing along to the radio. He says to his wife, hey, watch me go. (laughs) And then he does the most tepid, like one, two, three, little drum solo and uh, so it's it like, like, eh, 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 pretty
0: good. <laughs> Listen. How's that? Cute.
2: It's not synced to what he's playing to, and that presumably has been edited that way later. I don't think that he was listening to that music on set while he was playing, so someone made the choice to have him be playing not particularly in rhythm with the background music there. Yeah,
1: I was going back and forth as to whether I thought it was, you know, just as good as they thought it had to be, or if it was meant to be a comment on his actual chances at making it as a jazz drummer.
2: I read that Shelley Mann, the drummer who is seen in the movie and plays all the drum solos in the movie and was a noted jazz drummer on the west coast major figure and gets his own credit at the beginning i think yeah actually advised snodger and gave him some lessons and you know was there to make the jazz drumming authentic but uh
1: you can tell that he's been told like you put one stick here and then the other <laughs> stick goes and like like he's been shown something to do with his hands but maybe only once like uh, while they were shooting shelly man probably wanted to go up to him and say uh not quite my tempo
2: <laughs> Anyway, the third thing I was going to mention is... Wait, what were the first two things? First thing was the drugs. That's pretty interesting about the movie. Second thing is... It's Sinatra doing some real acting. That's an interesting yep, thing out yep, of this yep, movie. Yep. And the third thing is, yeah, this title theme went on to have its own life. And the sound of it and the feel of it went on to be pretty influential. And that's what we're here to talk about. Ah, Don't you think?
1: You could have fooled me. It kind of seemed like for a while there that we were here to talk about those first two things. But, yeah, I guess you're right ultimately.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, let me check the books here. Uh, yeah, that's what we're here to talk about. Did you have anything other than those three things that you thought was worth talking about about this movie? Because I'm not sure I do. No,
1: I mean, I can come up with some things in the movie that are not worth talking about.
2: Yeah, I guess another way of saying it is, I don't think there's anything else about this movie that's that distinguished.
1: Yeah, because uh, I definitely want to make fun of a few things uh later Oh, sure. On.
2: They're there. They're ready to be made fun of. Yeah, But let's talk a little bit about... Dun, 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 dun. It's cool, right?
1: It's really cool, and the thing I love about it right away, right off the bat, is the first thing you hear is this fast hi-hat. Like, there's whatever it is, four bars of that, and then you'll think, okay, that's the rhythm. But no. Then the music proper starts, and it's a totally different rhythm, much slower.
2: It's half that rhythm. Which... Does it not sound to you like general cinemas? That's what I hear.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, but you know, the influence
2: goes the other way. Obviously,
1: I think it does. The sound of the jazz hi hat that goes like that is so ubiquitous that it seems to me that when it starts off that way, if that's the first thing you hear. It made me think, oh yeah, it's just uh, just jazz. Just the backdrop is this is just the sound of jazz, and then okay, here comes the specific jazz that it is. And then, like, later in the tune, that faster bar comes back up again between a couple of other licks of the slower tempo. It just felt like this, like, independent jazz substrate.
2: To me, that moment, I also love it. I'm glad you're talking about it. I wanted to make sure to talk about this thing that happens in the first two seconds of the movie, is that it feels like... That might be a fun and exciting and energetic jazz, and then that the real thing is half tempo, it immediately sends you the signal that this is dirty This is slower than that) <laughs> This is the grime. We're down in the depths here. Yeah.
1: I think your thing is the more accurate and apt effect that the music probably intended to have.
2: Slow down there, buddy, because we got something to say to you, and you're not going to like it. Yeah. So it starts out, and then the trumpet comes in. It's singing the blues, more or less. Yeah now does that thing come back my impression was that it pretty much doesn't yeah he doesn't really use that theme as a theme he uses the second half of his main title as a theme
1: yeah that is more the theme for Frankie, but I think also for you know the seediness, the degradation of drug use, and its pull.
2: Right. Once you get to this this line in the bass. Right. And then what the brass is doing here. Here's the full Frankie machine.
1: Yeah, and he takes both of those elements, those triplets in the bass. Bum, bum, dum, bum, and then also the brass line on top, that brass melody. Bwa-da, bwa-da, and he runs with both of those in different directions.
2: Yeah, and the third thing, too, the kind of spiraling figure that's in between them there. Sort of the average of the two.
1: All right, sure. I kind of thought of that as an outgrowth of, of the, the bass, yeah. triplet bass line. Fair enough. Yeah, he gets great use out of exactly what you just sang as this incredible evocation of the grinding, grim pull of addiction.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to ask you, John, what's your favorite scoring moment in the movie? You have asked me this before and said, I bet it's the same as mine. I bet <laughs> yours is the same as mine. You do? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think my favorite scoring moment is the whole sequence in which that association that I just described gets set up between this music and going to use heroin with his pusher. The specific moment I'll highlight is indeed when those triplets come in and really come to the fore as... This crummy lowlife guy who's hanging around in a really nice suit, like all lowlife guys used to have back then, who's been trying to push Frank Sinatra to get back on the stuff. You know, very cynical, evil kind of guy. He's
2: not a good guy.
1: He's a bad guy. Yeah. So Sinatra has been valiantly saying, no, I'm not gonna use again. I'm not gonna do it again. And this guy has been slowly wearing down his resistance and finally weasels his way into the sale. And the moment when Sinatra makes the decision to trudge across the street and follow him up to his little apartment, to get injected, he turns and goes to walk, and that's when the triplets come in and go
2: ba 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 dee Right, it goes from being kind of maybe it's source music, maybe it's the bar music, and then it rises up and eats him.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: Dizzy, but he's
0: still in there trying. Take the dog up to Sash. Frankie, can I go with you? No.
1: I'll point to that as like the encapsulation of the overall accomplishment of that cue which is to establish the association between the grim force and this grim dirty jazz music.
2: Well, as usual, when one of us predicts what the other one's gonna say, I was wrong, that was not... <laughs> I have
1: a second guess as to what you think. <laughs> okay, the... what's
2: your second <laughs> guess as to what I thought you would say? Are
1: you gonna say, Are you gonna say when he goes up into the apartment and starts pulling the drug paraphernalia out of the drawer and putting it down on top of the bureau with a big brass hit, plah, plah every time he puts a thing down? Is that <laughs> your... Was that it?
2: No, that, was, that part is actually kind of funny because that's kind of like take that censor! Look what we're showing! Oh my God, <laughs> shot cord! Can you believe how close to the edge of censorship we're coming here? Those shot cords, because they're not shocking to the characters in the scene. That's true. They're shocking to you, the 1955 audience. So I thought those chords were pretty funny. <laughs> All right. But no, my favorite piece of scoring is when, much later in the movie, Frankie goes back to his room exhausted after a long night of gambling. Oh, and, that's
1: so great, too. I could easily have picked that. It's the same idea.
2: Yeah, well, I think that this is an even better showcase for what Albert Bernstein gets done in this movie because he goes, he gets in bed, he needs his sleep, he's going to lie down, and then something is wrong. And da 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 da, 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 da starts rising up on him course what this means is his addiction his cravings he's starting to experience withdrawal from his last fix and he's going to go crazy he needs the heroin that's what the music means and this is a great piece of scoring because he hardly acts it until the music has already told us what's going on Those first couple of times you hear da-da-da-da-da-da, he's just taken off his shoes. There's no special expression on his face. And that seems right. It's this internal sensation Hmm. that the music shows us, and then he has to react to that. Oh, my God, there it is. That music is my craving. And it sounds right and feels right. And at that moment, I thought, like, yeah, this score has something special to do in that one scene. I really thought you were gonna say that scene, John. I really thought it.
1: Well, you know what? I hold that to be a co-equal favorite. It's the same association, it's the same move. Uh, You're right to point out that it's even more featured in that spot because it emerges out of some-
2: Pretty music, yeah.
1: Some pretty music, some going to sleep music.
2: Very Elmer Bernstein, very Copeland-esque kind Mm -hmm. of. These peaceful open intervals. serenity and kind of acceptance and we haven't heard a lot of this sound in the movie so it feels like he's earned his rest and maybe things are going to work out from here on out yeah to maximize the contrast with the grinding man with the golden arm theme it's good scoring because you don't have to be preparing to do a film score podcast where you talk about it (laughs) for it to work the association is strong yeah. You might say overstrong at other times in the movie, but at this moment, it feels good. It feels like, oh yeah, I know what that means, and <laughs> I know what that feels like. Uh, so that's very satisfying.
1: I really am going to count this as us being in agreement, as us right. having the same thing in mind. Because really, for me, it was the whole movie's worth of this association, mm-hmm. of the bum bum ba means, okay, here we go, he's doing it again, he's dragging himself across the street with self-loathing to trudge up to this guy's dingy apartment to get injected. We don't have to see it again. I don't think we ever do, in fact, see it again. Right, we don't. But we don't have to because whenever the music comes in, we know that's what's happening, and we know about how his psyche got pushed to that point. It's a dramatically satisfying punchline every time he does that. So... I'm going to take the whole totality of that move across the movie as my thing.
2: All right, great. Thank God we're on the same page after all. you convinced me. Good. I think the association also is musically apt in that you know this figure the bass line just repeats over and over it doesn't change in a real blues it would go to another chord never goes to another chord it just stays in the same place and grinds and grinds and grinds and the brass on top the whole brass section just gets more and more insistent and it's a great depiction of some kind of hunger that Mm -hmm. you don't want to have and the sense of being dragged down by this force is great.
1: Yeah, it is great. It manages to be, you know, cool at the same time as it's dirty and depraved and all of that. But I, what I wanted to ask you, Andy, is why jazz? What did mm-hmm. jazz ever do to anybody? <laughs> that it seems so natural and obvious that, oh yeah, the low down, wrong side of the tracks gets... Jazz music. Mm -hmm. We balked at having this conversation in the Streetcar Named Desire episode. And I think I said, yeah, I think that's above our pay grade. But listen, since then, we've had to face up to Gone with the Wind, for crying out loud. So I feel like we've maybe bumped up a pay grade or two here. Yeah, I think...
2: And also, I think that this movie demands it even more so because the association here is pretty stark. Like we were just saying, when the jazz starts playing, that means you might be about to ruin your life.
1: It is what it means... But on the other hand, being a jazz big band musician had actual legitimacy and uh, cultural clout.
2: Yeah, well, that's a very strange thing about this movie, that the jazz represents degradation, and it also represents the clean life that he aspires to. The
1: path to salvation, yeah.
2: It is at both sides of the moral spectrum of this movie.
1: And I think the movie genuinely, you know, admires jazz. You know, it has an admiration for this contemporary big band leader, Shorty Rogers, who worked on the uh, arrangements of some of the Elmer Bernstein stuff in the movie, and like I said, shows up in the movie with an incredibly wooden-sounding cameo.
2: Do you think that's his real voice? (laughs) why would it why would they dub that voice is a good question why would they
1: put that voice there (laughs) why would they have gone to any effort to cause him to sound like that because
2: my advice to him my acting coach advice to him would be um come on guys let's make this really cook
0: (laughs) wow what's the matter come on let's try to really cook it mr machine
2: I'm Mr. Lane. Okay, can you read music? Yes. Shelly, let me. And the then I think Shelly Mann, the, the
1: drummer, hand. gives a slightly better performance as himself.
2: When he says it's number 38, it's right in front of number you? number 37, it's right in
1: front of you. Yeah. Much like a drummer would. He would totally say that, it's 37. You know yeah, he gets up and lets Frank Sinatra, sleep no deprived no, and drive. strung out, on, Frank Sinatra three, sit down behind a kit and can't play the beat. Anyway, that's the real shit. He plays the
2: beat fine. He actually it's his best drumming in the whole movie. That's true, it is his best for beat. Yeah. But then he starts getting the, he gets the shakes.
1: But anyway, it's clear that Elmer Bernstein himself had genuine admiration for jazz players and that the movie endorsed that, made a big deal of the soundtrack and, you know, put the guys on the screen. I don't think the movie has anything against jazz. I don't think anybody does.
2: Right. Yes. Well, so your question was not about whether people have something against jazz. It's why jazz signifies bad things to people who like it and what you're getting at, and what we were sort of getting at in the Streetcar Named Desire conversation, is that, yeah, that derives from a racial prejudice and a class prejudice. Like That's just true.
1: Yeah, I guess that's what I was getting at. Mm, Yeah, of course it is. (laughs) Of course it's that. That's the answer.
2: But, I mean, I think it's that, and I think it's more than that. I think it's complicated. Uh, I was flipping through this book called... Jazz Noir by David Butler, which is basically about this, about these associations and their history. And he talks about how prejudices are generally in the form of big dualities like mind versus body and, you know, civilization versus nature. And, you know, obviously the stereotype is classical music is mind and jazz is body. And there's a prejudice in that stereotype, but it's so big in what it encompasses that there's room for all kinds of ambivalence and you know, it may be in some context, freedom sounds too dangerous, but it, freedom is good. People like it. So. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's the thing. Like I was saying, jazz was mainstream and everybody liked it, I, you know, because, because it's great, because it's compelling and terrific to listen to. So as is unfortunately often the case when there is a cultural product that has associations with black people that everybody likes... The culture can adopt hypocritical attitudes towards it, and I think that's what we're seeing in the seemingly paradoxical uh, attitudes that the movie takes towards jazz.
2: Yeah, I think not just towards jazz, towards the subject matter, towards a lot of things. I wouldn't call it an exploitation movie exactly, but it totally exists on the energy of that, hey, this is pretty exciting. Oh, look, this guy's a drug addict. Woo! (laughs) That's the selling point, is that, you know, listen to this awesome theme that represents his drug addiction, and it became a hit, as you said, competing with Elvis. Also, I think it's just worth noting in that book I mentioned, the guy points out that the association of jazz with noir, noir in the sort of broader sense that includes this movie, not just Sam Spade movies, but movies of the city with a kind of jaded worldview, we now think of jazz being their natural musical accompaniment, but that association really didn't exist in the 40s only started to come into existence in the 50s and mostly is kind of a retroactive associate. You know, when Jerry Goldsmith did that jazzy trumpet in Chinatown as a throwback, it's a fairly anachronistic throwback. A movie from the 40s that was about the stuff Chinatown is about would not have had a jazzy score. It would have had a uh, Miklos Rojas score. You know, It yeah. would have had a European score.
1: Yeah, Rojas scored a bunch of those movies.
2: And yeah, that the use of jazz in these kinds of movies really doesn't come until after the studio system starts to soften in the 50s. I think it's no coincidence that it was around this same time when film scoring also got more dissonant in the high classical atonalist direction that we talked about in Planet of the Apes. The first scores that started to have those kinds of edgy qualities were being written around this time. And I think it's part of the same movement toward expanding what is permissible, aesthetically permissible, And so there's a prejudice inherent in the fact that jazz was ever less permissible than European music.
1: I think it should also be said that in America in the 50s, 1955 when this movie came out, jazz was super popular mainstream. The you know big jazz figures of the day were superstars. And yeah,
2: it should also be pointed out that the jazz musicians who are in this and whose style influenced this style, the guy whose book I was flipping through says that the style of Man with the Golden Arm and then the scores that come in the next 10 years, this whole field of what we call crime jazz now sometimes, mm-hmm. Peter Gunn that sounds like this. And sure, sure. Tons of scores. But this style, which has this very cutting masked brass section, mm-hmm. is associated with, uh, in particular, he singles out Stan Kenton, who Shelly Mann and Shorty Rogers both worked for, and also the Woody Herman band that these guys played with, which were West Coast white big bands on the other hand he points out Duke Ellington really wanted to score a movie wrote some letters to movie producers saying I'm Duke Ellington you've probably heard of me and I'd <laughs> love to score a movie I'd do it for no pay and they didn't bite and he didn't actually end up scoring a movie until another auto movie uh, anatomy of a murder in 1959 yeah. which I believe is in the bucket it's in the bucket and may show up someday it may indeed that would be cool but even in the embrace of jazz you know the actual racism was yeah none of these people are black but the music itself yeah is embraced
1: yep there's definitely a whole lot of racism going on, but I, I want to say this for jazz. It has, like we've been saying, this impression that it is the looser cousin of the straight lace classical world. I think that, to a large extent, that is an aesthetic vibe that it is able to give the listener, which is a lie. <laughs> because jazz, in fact is very rule-bound, is very regimented and strict in how to make it sound right. I remember in school when we were being given assignments to write music for this kind of a thing and that kind of a thing, and basically we could do whatever we wanted. The teachers kept saying, yeah, you know, anything goes, you can make anything work. And then came the time when we had the assignment to do like a jazz big band chart, and the same guy said, oh no, now now you have to follow the rules. Now, (laughs) this is the most strict form of composition there is because to get the voicings right to make it sound just so and just give it that crunchy wail that sounds so great it calls for a lot of education and a lot of skill much less of anything will go in jazz in point of fact in practical terms on the ground as you're playing it as in modern concert music <laughs> That kind of specialization that writing these kinds of charts required, I mean, it's not just anybody who can do this. It's a craft that is its own thing that you kind of need separate education for it. One of the reasons why I'm so impressed with Elmer Bernstein writing the score, yes, he had help with the arrangements, which he's very upfront about acknowledging, very proudly acknowledges the input from Shorty Rogers and Shelley Mann. But for him to be able to compose in this style, I mean, he wrote out all those chords. He decided what all those sweet dissonances were going to be is astonishing to me because he wasn't really himself a jazz guy. He was classically trained and, you know, his father played a lot of jazz records in the house and so he had it in his ears but he did not have the specialized experience and training and being able to kind of reverse engineer his way to sounding great with it I think is you know yet another sign of his genius.
2: Yeah I agree we said it you know we've talked about Elmer Bernstein on two prior episodes and we said both times and as Merit sang again he had incredible stylistic range yeah. in terms of movies and types of scores he wrote for those movies this is just like a completely different field of his output that we're touching on here than what were the prior ones to kill a mockingbird (laughs) yeah absolutely nothing to do with this The Magnificent Seven. Magnificent Seven. Again, a whole other dimension from this. Yeah. On the other hand, you can hear there are through lines of his musical personality. You know, I
1: actually heard a couple of moments in this score that seemed to very strikingly remind me of each of those previous two scores that we've discussed that you just mentioned.
2: I bet your Mockingbird moment was probably when Kim Novak falls asleep. That's the one. And we hear some delicate lullaby version of her little theme.
1: That's right. Piano with a little sort of lilting waltz with her theme and boy that sounds an awful lot like this moment in To Kill Mockingbird
2: many moments in To Kill a Mockingbird, and I bet your Magnificent Seven moment uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. was, there are several of these, but I bet it was the moment when he uh, comes to bang on the door, he's coming after her, and there's kind of a pulsing accompaniment and it's kind of the same rhythmic pulse as you hear throughout Magnificent Seven. Is that it? Dun, 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 dun.
1: Well, that's cool. Sure, I didn't quite hear that. No, I was, for Magnificent Seven, I was thinking of the cue towards the end of the movie when Kim Novak has locked Frank Sinatra in her apartment and he is going cold turkey to finally get the monkey off of his back and as he's kind of bouncing off the walls and clawing his hair out and stuff. I
2: see, yeah, the gunshot stuff. (laughs)
1: Yeah, the... Doesn't that sound like the thing for uh, the bad guys in Magnificent Seven?
2: I mean, this is what I'm saying. Elmer Bernstein went to all these different places, but he didn't disappear as he went to them. He had a specific musical personality. It comes through. He always had a kind of an emotional tone of being personable. Kind of his music always feels like it has heart. Yeah, it always feels like it has desire to be communicative and be a storyteller and not a background. He was versatile, but not a chameleon. He he's there.
1: The DVD of this movie includes an extra, which is an interview with Elmer Bernstein, which it covers a wide range of stuff in his career and the interview asks him about all kinds of stuff but there's a couple sentences right towards the end of the interview that maybe is even worth playing here on the show where he's talking about when he first addresses himself to a movie and starts to think about what the music should do
0: it's like trying to suss out a stranger
1: you know you meet a stranger and you want to know what are they about you know who are they you know and that's what you try to do with the film what is this film about
0: If there's going to be music in this film, why should there be music in this film? If there's going to be music in this film, what's the music supposed to do? So I spent a lot of time in that kind of thought.
1: It's so valuable that that is his way in. And, you know, again, we've talked about how that leads him to strike such a perfect tone across this incredible wide range of movies. Why should the music be there? What a great question. What a great place to start. And I think that does explain why he has this heart and why he has this affinity for storytelling.
2: Yeah. And now, let me rain on this a little bit. (laughs) I don't know if this score is the greatest example of him really getting through to the soul of something and understanding it at a deeper level. And I don't really think that's Elmer's doing. I think that's the kind of movie this is. It's a pretty superficial and schematic movie, and so he responds in kind.
1: Yeah, I agree on both counts. I agree it's not as remarkable achievement, certainly, as To Kill a Mockingbird. And of course it's not his fault. It's because this movie doesn't really have uh, much of a deeper there. You know, there's not too much of an underlying myth for the music to need to get to right
2: well it's a melodrama it's a simple melodrama yeah the myth is a man struggles with his demons and then uh overcomes (laughs) them in the movie in the book the book ends with him hanging himself so (laughs) that's one of the many ways as i was saying at the beginning that the book has literary aspirations it's fairly overwritten and have you read it i just dipped into it to look at Like What are we dealing with here? Because I think that understanding some of the weirdness of this movie, which I think we should talk about uh, a little bit, comes out of that it originates from people adapting a book that probably didn't lend itself very well to being adapted. So I did look at it and I was considering reading some of the prose here, but I don't need to. Just trust me, it's... Uh, it's purple. It's trying to be the great American novel. It's uh, not really as plot-driven as simple movies like this are. And the movie just does what Hollywood does, which is like, tell me the two things that happen, and then that's what the movie will be. And so it turns everything into sort of stick figures, and the music meets that meets that kind of movie and treats it that way. Here's what Bernstein said about this. Mm-hmm. Quote, this is not a score in which each character has a theme, it's not a score which creates a musical mirror for dialogue, nor is it a score which psychoanalyzes the characters and serves up inner brain on the half shell. It is basically a simple score which deals with the man and his environment. There are only three themes which are exploited in a compositional manner in the development of the score, which have to do with different aspects of his environment. Let's talk about those in a minute.
1: You want to talk about those in a minute?
2: Yeah, I thought we should maybe take a break. I thought maybe it would be good to... Uh... You know, stretch. Everyone should stand up and stretch. These shows run so long, and people need a little intermission, right?
1: You know, that sounds good.
2: I think this would be a great time to hear from our sponsor. What? Well, here's what I thought, John. Before we launch into this, we should say, this is not a joke. (laughs) This is not shtick. We do a lot of shtick on the show where we say, oh, if we had a show, we'd do it like this. And we're kidding. But we are not kidding when we now tell you that this episode has a sponsor. How about that? And we're excited about it. Yeah, this is a good match, we think.
1: Yeah, it's something that we genuinely thought would be of interest to our listeners, so we're happy to talk about it.
2: This episode has been and continues to be sponsored by Encoda, the streaming service for sheet music.
1: Encoda is an app that you can use on any of your devices that offers you a subscription similar to how you do your Netflix or your Spotify that gives you access to an enormous library, over 100,000 titles, nearly 30 million pages of an incredibly wide selection of sheet music from nearly 100 prestigious sheet music publishers like Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, and many more. You can download it and practice, play, and perform it, mark it up on your device, whatever you want to do.
2: Yeah, if you're a classical musician, you know that this music is the lifeblood of being a classical musician and is also expensive, hard to find in libraries, hard to get your hands on, and now there is a way to view it all, browse it all from home, Um, on the go on the go it's an idea that basically needs to exist and now it exists and it's Encoda so if you hadn't heard of it go check it out go to your app store and download the Encoda app and that is N-K-O-D-A and they've got a free trial so you can check out the entire library
1: you're right Andy it's something that totally needs to exist and so we're really happy that it exists and we're happy to tell you to actually go check out Encoda N-K-O-D-A and give it a try All right, so Andy, you were just reading that quote from Elmer Bernstein where he says that there are three different themes that he uses in this score. One of them is that opening main title track.
2: Which he describes as being a theme about, back to the quote here, Uh Frank's relationship to his general environment, his job as a dealer in a cheap poker joint, to his fight against the dope habit, to the pusher who sells him the stuff, to the street itself. That's Elmer Bernstein's caption for the main theme.
1: So we've kind of hinted at what some of the other music material in the movie is. How does he list them?
2: Two, Frank's relationship to his home environment, his neurotic wife who feigns a debilitating illness in order to hold him, to the shabby flat with its lower-depth inhabitants, to his own guilty lack of love for his wife. That is his theme, too. Okay. And he's referring to this theme. I would call a boo-hoo-hoo theme. (laughs) That's
1: pretty good. Yeah, so we hear this. I think, interestingly, we hear the beginning of this. The intro starts on the shot of Frank Sinatra at the top of the stairs before he goes into the apartment, before we, the audience, know what's waiting for him inside, so that the entrance there really tells you that this is about his outlook, his attitude towards what's Behind the door, and then turns out what's behind the door is his wheelchair bound wife with a cake welcoming him back from prison. Thank And he has this, yeah, kind of boo hoo <laughs> relationship with him. Well, she certainly, let's say, has a boo hoo hoo relationship with him.
2: With life as general. Uh,
1: yeah, and here's where I want to say that this. This was not my favorite acting performance that eleanor parker gives
2: she's the baroness from the sound of music right is she oh wow i really didn't recognize her
1: well she uh she's much better suited to that role
2: yeah she's just terribly miscast i think the new york times review the bosley crowther said that she seems like a society lady who just happens to be sitting in this wheelchair and they should have <laughs> cast i think he says an authentic drab which <laughs> was a funny use of drab <laughs> as a noun but yeah, she looks glamorous and pretty and the dynamic in the room doesn't make any sense. You don't buy it and you don't know what's going on. And so given that, yeah, do you think Elmer Bernstein did the right thing?
1: I think Elmer Bernstein kind of didn't buy it.
2: You hear that, right? In the boo-hoo-hoo, you hear a kind of trying to cover up the performance. That's what it sounds like to me.
0: I had this cold sore. I wanted to look real nice for you when you came back and I was afraid it wouldn't be gone. So I, I put this goofy stab under dry.
2: Oh, Franchi. Oh, Zash. I don't think this music is responding to the performance, the character on screen. I think it's saying, no. this slot in the movie needed a thing like this, so let's imagine there was a thing like this
1: here. <laughs> But it's certainly responding to the beats in the scene. Like, he takes out his drum kit to show, hey, look, they gave me some drums, and some jazz comes in, a walking bass and a horn come in to portray, oh, the jazz world that he wants to go into.
0: See, part of the cure is to keep yourself busy doing things you enjoy. Like, for instance, I wanted to learn to drum and music, and Dr. Lennox got him to help me do it.
1: But then, you know, it cuts back to her, and she shows that she's got this whistle. I didn't really understand this whistle, but anyway, the music suddenly is back to her material.
0: There's something important I gotta tell you. What? I forget right now. A whistle? Oh, and then it goes very sometimes. quickly I'm and nimbly back so, into some God, jazz gosh, when Frank starts
1: one one. talking again.
0: On, you were telling me. Oh, well, the first thing you do and when you get And then again
1: the like really on a dime. Oh, I
0: know I know what it is. I know what I had to tell you. Bye, took me to this movie and the girl's it kid is
1: right back to this about? kind of mopey-soupy oh, stuff to yeah, it kind oh, of goodness. feels like cover her up. It's
2: these whiny parallel thirds.
1: That's right, it's whiny.
2: It's supposed to sound like a pleading, it's just a maximum pathetic to do these sliding parallel thirds <laughs> that never quite settle into what the bass is doing because they're doing little chromatic. <laughs> It's never comfortable. That's a very old fashioned sound of pathos. That energy has so little to do with the way the scene feels that it doesn't work. It didn't work for me. And it didn't work for me that the things you just called out, that he gets very interested in the surface of the dialogue, which I think is another symptom of not having an underlying feeling for what's going on. I
1: agree, and he really seems compelled to jump right back into this texture whenever we cut back to her. Whenever the scene cuts back mm-hmm. to Zosh, which is <laughs> i have never heard that name before
2: from the novel. I guess it's supposed to be a Polishy nickname for Sophia. Ah, oh, all right.
1: But like, here's a time where we cut back to Zosh sitting in the apartment, and we hear those meandering, whiny, parallel thirds. This time, it's over some pizzicato strings.
0: like my hair better this way or upswept. Which
1: made me think of, again, Streetcar Named Desire. This was one of those spots where I wondered if he was inspired by Alex North's use of pizzicato strings to indicate mental unrest and break from reality because she's kind of not really well and she's living in this lie and has concocted this trap for herself.
2: Two thoughts about that. One, when he did the pizzicato strings, I thought yeah, you probably should have done this more for her because it's a better match Hmm, for her spastic performance. That would have been a better sound world for her. But also, I thought, yeah, he clearly has listened to the Streetcar Named Desire soundtrack. Sure. Remember that track from Streetcar that in that conversation I said, this is such a great track, even though it's not in the movie, I think it was influential. And you said, well, how can that be? And I said, well, I think the soundtrack was a big hit and people listened to it. I thought of that. So this is the cut music from the beginning of Streetcar when she's walking down the street, not in the movie, but on the soundtrack. (laughs) ¶¶ That angular with the piano clunking out kind of a boogie-woogie bass against scattered elements of jazz. Elmer mm-hmm. Bernstein goes there a bunch in this movie in a very similar balance. Also, just in passing, I know this is really a footnote to the Streetcar named Desire conversation, but found in my reading that I was right that that album was significant. I found a quote where Miles Davis said, You know the best thing I've heard in a long time? Alex North's music for A Streetcar Named Desire. That's a wild record. If anybody's going to be able to write for strings in the jazz idiom or something near to it, it'll be North. I recommend everyone hearing that music. Yeah, man. That's right, Miles. I think everyone heard that music, and I definitely think Elmer Bernstein heard that music. Yeah. So yes, I don't think that that connection is coincidental at all. Anyway, the Zosh theme. I think this is a case of trying to compensate for flaws and just calling attention to them.
1: Yeah all right i think he succeeds a little bit better with the theme that's basically associated with the other woman in the movie with kim novak's character molly
2: all right so here's to finish bernstein's own rundown of his themes the Mm -hmm. third theme characterizes quote frank's relationship with the other woman who is a symbol to him of love and the better life such small hopes as he has from time to time and his chance of making it away from the habit and even the neighborhood and its hold on him yeah so that's this theme
1: Which is pretty. It is pretty. And actually, it was pretty enough that a phenomenon that we've also talked about in the past. People wrote lyrics to love themes out of movies and tried to sell them as songs, so this got some lyrics written to it.
2: Yes, by Sylvia Fine, Danny Kaye's wife.
1: Sylvia Fine K. That's right. Yeah, this song, it turned into a song called Molly-O. That's the, you know, the Hepcat 1955 nickname he asked for her is Molly-O.
0: Molly, with her green eyes, and her I love her so,
2: Okay, but the actual theme in the movie... True confessions, John, did you hear this theme when you were watching the movie? Yeah, I did. Oh, really? All right. Well, I didn't. I didn't hear it until I went back and listened to the soundtrack.
1: I clocked it because, yeah, I noticed it as something new, something, you know, a different material.
2: I couldn't really tell what was happening musically other than just the general vibe getting softer and gentler. Is it bad? Not too bad. You know, a lot of movies have obligatory love themes or, you know, Mm -hmm. the woman theme. Right. Right. There's got to be a feminine theme to go with the masculine theme because that's how musical scores should be formed. And that's what this felt like to me because I don't know what Kim Novak's character cares about or is all about. There's very little going on there. Also, this music shows up the first time we hear it. I think it's in some radio music. It's a pop arrangement, and then it comes out into the room. I really did not follow that. That's what was happening. Should have heard what I did with Pedrito a little while ago.
0: Good, huh? I hope the neighbors liked it, too.
1: Oh, gosh, I don't think I'd followed that. That trick happens a bunch in the movie. I mean, we already mentioned how the main title track kind of gets used quasi as source music, like you hear it just in the opening scene when he's sitting in the bar. The tune that he goes to audition playing drums on, the tune that you know we see the real Shelley Mann and the real Shorty Rogers performing, is kind of hmm. loosely based on the main theme, isn't it?
2: Da, 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 da. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it is. Because it's kind of da, da 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 you're right. It's a variant of it.
1: Yeah, it's a variant on that, and it's gotta be intentional. And uh, then cruelly later on in the movie when he's drying out in Kim Novak's closet, she's locked him in there as a last resort and she goes to turn on the radio to drown out his pounding, and the same track is playing on the radio. <laughs>
2: Right, it's the music he couldn't cut the audition for. It's pretty rough.
1: Yeah, it's pretty rough but it also kind of sounds like his wow wild wailing theme music you know, it's built out of the same notes. Yeah, I think there was a gleeful intermingling of soundtrack and score stuff because they knew that they were putting out a soundtrack of the stuff and that the soundtrack was going to be a draw and an achievement too. You know, they were involving these real musicians that they wanted to promote.
2: And then it did so well that they went back a year or two later and recorded more stuff with some of the same guys and some of the same sound. And Elmer Burns I forget what it's called. Blues and Brass. He had a couple of these albums because he had this sort of name as a guy who did some cool jazz music.
1: Another thing that got done after the fact, a year after the movie, and this is kind of reminiscent of what we talked about in Laura, is that Sylvia Kay went back and also wrote lyrics to... The main theme to this main title track That's right And that became, you know, something of a popular song I think Sinatra himself recorded that Which is kind of weird Well,
2: no, this is, it's complicated here
1: Oh, oh, that's right, he recorded Alright,
2: so we gotta untangle this What do you think the lyrics to The Man with a Golden Arm would be? <laughs> Probably like, he's a man with a golden arm <laughs> No, that's silly That's like a joke John would make on the show
1: Oh, you mean like this?
2: Assassin, <laughs> to
0: none, the man with a golden
2: Oh, you're just making it more confusing here, John. All right, no, not that. (laughs) My joke was supposed to be that the lyrics to the Man with the Golden Arm theme, which was already a hit as theme from the Man with the Golden Arm... Right, the instrumental. ...are not about a man with a golden arm. They are not about anyone in the movie. Delilah
0: was a hot-flying flutie.
2: They are about Delilah.
1: Delilah Jones. Don't phone
0: her, there isn't any more Delilah. Delilah Jones.
2: Uh, that tune sounds like someone sang delilah and that is good enough for radio we talk so much about the meanings of these themes and what they sound like and then it, you just change it to say well we're actually singing about delilah jones oh
0: all right
2: but here's the complication there is a stupid song where they sing the man with the golden arm that song exists That song was going to be used to promote the movie and then they basically backed away from doing that.
1: Yeah, that was written by the songwriting pair Kahn and Van Huysen, who wrote a lot of the classic Sinatra Rat Pack songs. And they wrote a song for him to sing, you know, the theme song to his own movie, but yeah, they didn't use it.
0: And no one's really sad about the man with a
2: golden
0: arm
2: but then it was transferred down one one rat and it was released <laughs> by Sammy Davis Jr there's a real commercial recording of this song
0: he buys every thrill and pays any price and thinks he's
2: having fun and what's the harm Now, is this the same man and the same arm as the one in the movie? Well, I
1: mean, they're a little loose with what the golden arm refers to in the movie. What
2: do you think the golden arm is, John? Yeah,
1: I was thinking about that. I'm really glad you asked. I think that it has three interpretations that 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 are layered layered together. together. One is that he's got the knack for drumming because as the well-known music expression goes, you say about a drummer who's good at drumming that he has a golden arm, right? You've heard that all the time. Mm. Yeah, so one is that his arm is good at drumming, so it's golden. Another is that his arm is good at dealing and perhaps cheating at dealing cards, which is another reason why he's golden and then a third interpretation is that his arm is golden because he has to spend a lot of money to inject it full of drugs and so it takes on this evil value
2: i think that you're correct about all of those i think that the nelson algren approved novel meaning of it specifically has to do with the dealing that as a dealer he's golden
1: okay can i can we talk about this for just a second
2: yeah i guess you've got a rant i'm gonna sit back and enjoy (laughs) Well,
1: the whole first act of the movie, they're constantly... Everybody's referring to Frank Sinatra's character. They're addressing him as dealer, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) His old buddies call him dealer. The cops pick him up on the street, address him disdainfully as dealer. and They say, hey, you're dealing? Low life's at the bar. Come and talk to him. You know, you're going to be dealing for us. So they just say that. They don't talk about what the dealing means. And I assumed it meant... Drug dealing, right? It's a drug movie. They're talking about dealing like he was a dealer for the higher ups in the drug racket, whatever it is. You know, they want him to get back out on the street corner. Then it turns out, cuts to, he's finally agreed to deal for them, and he's dealing poker! And I absolutely shot up out of my chair and said out loud, he's a poker dealer? like, it struck me as a joke. It struck me, like, you know that old joke, uh, the guy keeps getting phone calls and the mysterious voice on the other end says, uh, the
2: Viper is coming. Uh, oh no, the Viper is coming. And then... Yeah, the Viper turns out to be Frank Sinatra.
1: Yeah, Frank Sinatra rings the guy's doorbell and finally he says, I'm the Viper, I'm here to vipe your windows. Ha ha ha, it's benign after all. Like, what? that's the dealing you were talking about this whole time is a poker dealer? And then... Boy, this really didn't make any sense to me, that he's a... Why do they need... Look, if this was really how underground card games were run in the 50s, then I am surprised to learn that. But I am really skeptical that the way it worked is that big-time gamblers who wanted to play poker, instead of just dealing for themselves, which anybody can do, which is not hard... And, you know, you pass the deal around whenever you play poker anyway, but instead of just doing that, they had to go to this special place where this one guy was going to deal for them. Then later in the movie, it turns out, not only is he just dealing the cards, he's playing against the other gamblers as the house like he's making the bets against him
2: well that's what i took it to mean i thought that's what he was golden at was actually playing
1: so if he's known as being the best dealer then why would the big gamblers want to play against the good poker player like
2: <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. That is a great question about that he, he you know, imparts esteem to this particular poker game and everyone wants to play him. Yeah. You're right. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, uh, it really doesn't make sense. When he shows back up, they should be like, we're doing just fine with Shwivka here.
1: Yeah, that's right. They're beating the other guy. Like, why does anybody want to go back and play at the game where the guy is like a professional player and playing against you and is good at it?
2: It's that golden arm. I think they can't resist the lure yeah. of that golden arm.
1: And then, of course, every single bet is a string bet, which I Guess wasn't really a rule back then, but still it galls me.
2: All right. um I just did a little uh, research while you were going off about dealer. Thank you. I've used the uh, Google Books Ngram viewer about how frequently a word appears, used the phrase drug dealer in the published corpus, and it seems to have been extremely rare until the late 60s and then rockets up. So I bet the word dealer was not strongly associated with drug dealers at this point.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. I was under a misapprehension as I was watching but that is (laughs) that is the effect it had on me
2: yeah as you point out even if you move the other meaning of dealer aside it doesn't make sense the way that they're making poker dealer be like that's the thing you were born to do yeah i've never heard of that before (laughs) there's another thing going on in here in a couple of places first thing we'll have the piano will come to the fore and play some kind of more abstract, more dissonant, sort of more modern classical sounding stuff. Like in this moment in the fix scene after we get those shot chords for the syringe and for the, the spoon. The spoon. And then there's this kind of like crunching in the piano. The world of modern sounds, modern feelings. He also goes to a similar place for a chase scene later, a running scene at least.
1: Oh yeah, when Kim Novak runs out of the club and he runs across the street after her. That, that was cool. Yeah,
2: and we got this kind of syncopated, chunky thing. It's got jazz elements, but it's been classical composed a little. I mean, this is that in-between place we were talking about when we were talking about Bernstein East on the on the waterfront conversation. This, You take some jazz elements, but then you really blend and turn it into this in-between 50s sound. Because I like that stuff, you know, when I heard that.
1: I really love that stuff, yeah. I
2: was like, yeah. And then in the article, Elmer Bernstein said this was probably his favorite moment in the score. Of course, I was enjoying it in a way that was somewhat separate from the movie. It wasn't like it made the movie pop it just made the music pop and i'm happy for that a cool moment for using the jazz is in the middle of the cold turkey drying out sequence where he doesn't have any drugs in the room with him but he goes through the motions kind of frantically of getting his arm ready and this compulsive miming of his addictive behavior gets one of the shelly man solos it gets a wild jazz drum solo I thought that was a nice conceptual link of this choppy consistency of a drum solo and the choppiness of that overall sequence and what's going on. He has the motions, but not the substance of the thing. And it's just the drum that felt like the right association.
1: There was another moment later in that same cue that kind of has a similar effect that I really liked when he's clawing at the door and going nuts and we start to hear the build up, and it starts to build and build and gets faster and we know what this means, we know where that goes it goes to it means he's getting a fix except this time it doesn't It gets cut off. It doesn't get to the button. It's this ramp up that isn't paid off, that isn't satisfied. And, you know, that seemed nicely evocative to me of somebody going through withdrawal and not getting the satisfaction he needs.
2: Uh Uh-huh. That's cool. I feel like the difference between the big score when the jazz band is wailing and the small score for Intimate Scenes is pretty stark And I think that the jumping from one to the other often feels artificial, forced. It's just another thing that's kind of shaking the jar so that the movie never quite settles.
1: That's a fair point. There definitely are a lot of bumps that you kind of have to go over as it switches from jazz to not jazz and vice versa. I do think he finds a couple of moments where he integrates things in interesting ways. Like what happens after that cool jangly piano running across the street music when molly is going to leave he takes molly's theme you know which we've heard before as being this very sweet pretty thing and he does manage to lay it on top of these rhythmic off-kilter jazz chords kind of mix the two headspaces to put her for a moment in this rough and tumble world.
0: Yeah,
2: I actually noticed that moment as, oh, he uh, is fitting things together here. And it kind of stood out because that's not the level at which the score or the movie is thinking most of the time. It was like one scene has this kind of compositional thinking in it and the rest doesn't. It kind of stood out. I don't know. It never felt to me like we'd entered an integrated space.
1: No, I think that's a fair point. I think it's probably also fair to say that Alex North's Streetcar Named Desire score does have a more philosophically meaningful integration of jazz and non-jazz.
2: Yeah, I think that score is more nuanced. Yeah. At a purely musical level, and also at a dramatic scoring level. It's just more complex.
1: Sure. It's more complex, and it's, you know, it's the Tennessee Williams play. It's a better source material than this
2: movie. Yeah, and a better adaptation. I mean, to be fair to it, we talked about Alex North with Streetcar really initiating the idea that you could have jazz elements in film scores. This one, it's four years later, really is a landmark in that progress. And I gave little shout outs earlier to later stuff in the crime jazz genre, which, becomes just a huge chunk of what Hollywood is putting out is scored with music that kind of descends from this music. So Mm -hmm. it's certainly important in that respect. I don't think that it's mistakenly on these lists, but as a score in itself, it doesn't do a lot that you haven't already seen by the time you've seen the main title.
1: (sighs) I agree. I feel like this score in this movie definitely didn't gel together into an overall experience at the level, certainly, of a To Kill a Mockingbird. But I think also of many other Elmer Bernstein scores. And again, it has nothing to do with Elmer Bernstein. I just think there wasn't too much there for it to do, with the exception of what you know, we both said is The real big achievement of this movie, the big main title theme, and the way that it gets tied to the drug addiction, and the jonesing for the hit that the drug addict needs, I thought that was a really special association and a powerful use of film music. And then, yeah, I agree, the stuff for the two different women is a little bit here and there, and yeah, I also was sort of paying attention to the music a little bit outside of the movie as well. You know, I think that's just kind of the movie it is. Yeah. I guess that's my closing statement.
2: Yeah. My closing statement is that this is some solidly good music that constitutes a pretty good score for an okay movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I can sign off on that.
2: It sounds better on the soundtrack. I'm not surprised that the soundtrack did well. Get
1: yourself this soundtrack. It is a good and fun listen.
2: Yeah, it is. The school of scoring that this is an early instance of, is a cool school of scoring. Yes. I enjoy watching those movies, and I enjoyed this movie more than I expected to. It just wasn't a particularly interesting kind of enjoyment. It was just one of those, as you've said before. Yeah. But you know what that title does? It lets Saul Bass make a little logo for this movie of a Uh jaggedy arm, which is awesome.
1: Oh, sure. Definitely an awesome jaggedy arm. Was this actually the first... Movie that Saul Bass did animated opening title sequence for? I think it may have been.
2: It's one of his first. It's not his very first. Okay. But the association with this cool jazz music and his cool cutouts, little abstract lines and things kind of founded the whole title sequence attitude of the 50s and 60s. And for good reason. It's great.
1: Yeah, I think this is now the third movie that we've covered that had a Saul Bass opening titles.
2: Hmm. Vertigo?
1: Yep, yeah, Vertigo. Um, Once you're at Vertigo, it's not
2: hard. Oh, Psycho, that's right. Yeah, Psycho too. Oh, this is the third, so those are the only other two. Okay, yeah. I yeah. thought there were three. I couldn't figure it out. The Pink Panther wasn't. No. But I bet there wouldn't have been a Pink Panther if it hadn't been for Saul Bass.
1: You're absolutely right. The idea that we're going to do something stylish and mood setting and set piece in the opening titles, I really think you're absolutely right, is due in large part to the stuff that Saul Bass was doing
2: you know like why was this in our bucket it's on a lot of people's lists of important film scores because it had influence in the sounds of film scores and also i think because it had influence in the sounds of main titles Mm, yeah which is similar to what we said about the pink panther sure it's a very charismatic powerful main title assemblage and then there's an okay movie after that but yeah that's kind of how this landed for me too i bet that's why people keep talking about this
1: I think you're right. I think that's why it wound up in our bucket. And uh, I think it might be time to see what else is in our bucket.
2: That's right. The time has come for the random drawing of next episode's subject. little clarification about this. Yeah, We are really doing a random <laughs> drawing from a list to find out what we're going to talk about next time. We genuinely do not know yet.
1: We, right now, seriously have no idea what the next movie is going to be. We do not.
2: It has been brought to my attention that because of the aforementioned shtick that we like to do...
1: (laughs) Nobody believes us about anything. No
2: one believes that we're telling the truth. Because... That's right. I'll just sotto voce tell you we don't actually have a lottery ball machine here. That's just a joke. But that stands in for a real thing we are doing with an actual random number and an actual numbered list of scores. And it's happening right now.
1: Yeah. We have recorded this whole episode without knowing what the next episode is going to be so you are witness to a genuinely exciting moment which is i think totally validly augmented by some judicious sound
2: effects if you already understood that and didn't need the clarification <laughs> apologies for saying something that we thought was obvious But we don't want any of you to be missing out and just thinking that we're doing all of this to, you know, just to belabor revealing something. No, we're belaboring the show itself.
1: Who could possibly believe that we were guilty of belaboring anything?
2: (laughs) It's not our style. And furthermore... Okay.
1: All right, Andy, it's your turn to draw. You have the bucket ready?
2: Yes, I have the bucket here. And now I am going to a random number generator, which for the purposes of radio... We shall imagine to be this ball machine. Sounds great. Has there been exciting music playing? Oh,
1: there sure has been exciting music playing, and it is some real good exciting music.
2: Yeah. Oh, and there's only so much of it, so we better do this right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. You ready to go? I'm nervous as I always am. Candy, hey, I'm closing my eyes here. What do you got? I can take it.
2: The ball shows me. Yes, I'm wincing. Batman by Danny Elfman, 1989.
1: Oh, okay. Danny Elfman. Well, it was about time we got to Danny Elfman. It is. He's a big figure.
2: He's a big figure. And this is, for various reasons, a big score. Oh, yeah. There are other entry points to Danny Elfman filmography, but this is a fine one.
1: Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of resonance that it has to so many things that are still going around today.
2: Exactly. Did you see this movie when it came out? I think it was deemed a little bit too sordid for me at the age I was in 1989, but a few years later I saw it. Yeah, okay. Did you see it when it came out?
1: Yeah, I did actually. I have a very fond memory of my father deciding that he wanted to take me to see it and he took to heart the rating and he parentally guided me ahead of time and said, you know, Bruce Wayne's gonna his parents are getting killed, you're going to be okay with that and then like prepped me for it and yeah, and then he took me and we had a good time. So, I really kind of enjoy remembering that.
2: Oh, yeah, it's your bonding with the uh, MPAA. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was kept away because the parents die. I mean, I'd seen Bambi, I understand the parents can die, but I yeah. think I was kept away cuz it's it's kind of seedy. It's kind of into seediness. That's true. I don't know. Haven't seen it in a long time. This will be a cool conversation.
1: Yeah, me neither. I mean, I feel like I have, but I haven't.
2: No, you've seen a different Batman. I don't understand. Well, you will. Uh, the end of the show has arrived. Thanks, John. Thanks to our sponsor.
1: Yeah, thanks, Encoda.
2: Thanks to you, the listener. Stick around. Next time is Batman. Yeah,
1: next time is Batman. I wanted to say it too.
2: See you then.